So if you got your Bible, you can go ahead to turn and turn to uh, Luke chapter 19. We're going to be looking at the parable that Jesus tells in verses 11 through 29 tonight. I'm going to ask Ryan if he would come forward and read our passage for us. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they were they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minutes and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him. And sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. When the first came before him saying, Lord, your minute has been made 10 minutes more. Because you have been faithful in your In very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Lord, your minute has made five minutes. He said to him, and you shall be be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your minute, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the minute from him and give it to the one who has the 10 minutes. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minutes. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But to the one who has not, even what he has will be take will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for, again, for an opportunity to come to your word. Um, God, to see what you would have to to tell us today and what you would have for us to learn. Uh, Father, we thank you for the blessings of um, being, ad- being able to gather uh, around your word and under the teaching of your word. God, we thank you that you speak to us through your word. Um, God, we thank you that we have this objective picture of of. Uh, you and your son of, of the life that you have called us to an ethic that we um, would uh, live so as to honor you in our lives. God, we recognize our own sin in these passages. We recognize our own shortcomings. God, and we recognize um, the great salvation that Jesus has provided uh, for us. God, we pray um, again this day um, that you would um, bless the congregations in Blount County um, that have this day preached and taught um, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray for all churches um, that are um, preaching the, the true message of the gospel. Um, today in, in particular, we pray for our friends um, at 
uh, First Baptist Alcoa, um, God, people who, um, uh, who are, are, are close to our hearts in many ways, um, our, our brother Cody, who has gone out from us and who serves there. God, we pray for the ministry that they have in that community, that, that people would hear the gospel through that church, um, that they would, um, learn about Jesus Christ, um, through their, through their weekly meetings and Bible studies. Um, God, that they, the members of that church, uh, their witness in the community, um, as they live and serve and work and, and, um, go about their lives, um, God, that that would be a witness, um, to the community. Father, that you would draw people to yourself through that congregation. Um, we ask this for FBA. God, we ask this for our own church and every church, um, that preaches your gospel. God, as we open um, this passage, God, shine a light on it. Shine a light on our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us to understand it rightly and apply it rightly. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm uh, I'm having to put my computer up here like this today because uh, our speaker got, the cord got uh, severed on it. And so I'm, I'm having to, if we're going to record the service, I've got to have the speaker up closer to here. So I apologize for the distraction of all my stickers on my, uh, on the back of my laptop, but they're all really cool. So, um, so the, the passage we're talking about is, is there in Luke 19. And, um, I thought about the fact that I, I quoted R.C. Sproul, um, last week, and I'm going to sort of briefly quote him again. And the fact that, that he had a book and a, and a discipleship series, uh, entitled Ideas Have Consequences. And so some of you may be familiar with that or, or seen that in, in general. That's sort of a, a, a proverbial phrase that, that maybe you've heard in other places. Ideas have consequences. Um, as we are beginning our study on Francis Schaeffer's How Should We Then Live, the whole idea of that book is that ideas have consequences, that as a culture embraces certain ideas, um, it will be blessed of God in some ways, and as a culture rejects certain ideas, that um, it will it will co- suffer collapse. And so we come to this passage um, that obviously has uh, a whole lot of connections um, particularly to an economic metaphor that we see in this passage. Um, it is talking about the kingdom of God. It's talking about our lives as Christians. And so that is the direct application of it. Yet I think there's a piece of it where we will also take principles from the way God works in his own um, interactions with humanity and that those would be right things for us to take as as. Um, guides posts for us in terms of the way that we engage in things in a lot of ways. And so it, 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 we're going to kind of weave in and out of the spiritual application and maybe some kind of practical application, because obviously in a passage that is, it is um, using the illustration of an economic situation. When we look to our own current cultural moment where we sit in sort of a, um, a progressing economic crisis in a lot of different ways. Um, I think we mentioned it in the, in the class again today that for years people have been talking about the fact that uh, the current generation may be defined as the millennial generation or something like that will be the first generation in, you know, a hundred years or whatever to have a lower standard of living than their, their parents um, did. Um, and that's, that's, for probably the first time in, in, in multiple generations, maybe a hundred years, right? Rising debt, um, 
rising cost of education, lower wages, um, housing costs, right? We talk about those things and all the different ways that they play out, particularly for a lot of you guys um, who are of a generation who are looking to buy homes and, and looking to start families and all these things and the added difficulties that come because of the economic situation we are in. Then we hit the COVID um, year, right? Or two years. And all of a sudden, you know, we had a, a government that was printing free money and sending people free checks and how all that plays into our understanding of, of, of work ethic and, and where money comes from and how it works and long-term repercussions of these things. We are in the midst of a labor crisis, as probably many of you have experienced as you have gone, uh, you know, to, to local places and restaurants and stuff like that. Christy and I, um, the other day, her dad was in town. We went out to a local fast food kind of restaurant. And as we walked in, there was a sign on the door that said, please be, got, please be kind to the employees who actually bothered to show up today. And I was kind of like, that's, biz- that's bizarre that we would have that, right? Like it is a weird thing that a company would go, yeah, we're just going to go ahead and put this on the door so that you know what's up. Okay. That's, there's something bizarre about that. Um, all the while, this spectrum of, of socialist and communistic ideas bearing pressure on our, on our society, right? And I'm not making any necessary comments on any of those things per se, but, but the idea of a state-sponsored healthcare and education and debt forgiveness and housing and universal income and all these things continue to press on our lives and the way we think. So again, I think, and part of the reason why we're doing the, the how should we then live study is because I think we are as a culture are sort of at a tipping point, man. We are at a point where something is going to give. Um, and I don't know which way that will go and what it will look like. Um, we don't believe in many of the ideals, uh, that we used to believe in. And I think that's partially because we don't believe in the things that the scripture would point us to um, the way we used to. And so, again, this passage is not about economic issues directly, but I think we can make a connection between saying if God in if God works among us in these ways, that maybe this is an appropriate way to think about the way that we interact um, with the larger society in some of these things. Okay. So let's kind of dig in, see what we got to, what we can, when we can glean from this and, um, where we're going to start is verse 12 instead of a verse 11. We'll come back to verse 11 in just a minute. Um, but let's look at verse 12 through 14 to sort of establish the cast of characters that we see in this parable that Jesus tells us. So verse 12 says, he said, therefore, this is Jesus, A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Okay, so right there in those three passages, we get the the three main characters of our of our parable. First off, there is the nobleman. Okay, the nobleman is probably obviously Jesus Christ, okay? Jesus is the nobleman that is being referenced there. He has a kingdom that he is going to receive, and he is going away to receive that kingdom, and then he says he will return at some point, all right? There's a second group of people that are called the servants. So the servants in the parable are Jesus' disciples and followers. 
So this would include, obviously, his 12 disciples and people who were part of Jesus' entourage, but it would also include you and I, people who have, um, down through history, trusted in Jesus Christ and who have become his followers. All right. The servants, these servants are marked in the in the story by those who are responsible to conduct the business on the nobleman's behalf in his absence. Okay, does that make sense? So the servants are there to do to conduct the the nobleman's business while he is gone until he returns. And each of them of these 10 servants is given this this thing called a a minus or or, or a minus. Um, that's sort of a, a, a generic term in some ways in, in Greek culture. It means an amount of money. Um, it can even mean all the way down to just like talking about one coin or something like that. But technically, a, a, a mina is a sixth of a talent. A talent is about 600 denarii. A denarii is roughly equivalent to a day's wage. Okay, which for us, let's say, would be about a hundred bucks, let's say, or something like that. So all that to say, you do the math. I did it for you. Um, it may be the case that this nobleman is handing somewhere in the range of a hundred thousand dollars to each of his servants and saying, I "Want you guys to take this money, do business for me, um, and and receive a uh, a something back for it. Uh, that it would gain something for me. All right." The amount is not super significant because the principle remains whether or not it's a single coin or a big bunch of money, but it just sort of gives you a little more context to the passage. The last character in the story is the, these people who are called the citizens at the beginning of the story, and by the end of the story, who are called Jesus or the nobleman's enemies. They represent the lost, the people who are apart from Jesus Christ, those who in their foolishness and in their uh, defiance have rejected Jesus and rejected his rule over them. And they are marked again by that when the nobleman leaves on the journey, one, as soon as he is gone, they express no interest in being ruled by him. And then they are also uh, singled out because of the judgment that they receive at the end of the story. And so it's important to make that distinction between the servants and the citizens, because uh, I think if you just read the passage a little quick, you would almost seem like they were the same people, but they're not. There's the servants and there's the citizens. And they respond notably differently, right, um, to the nobleman before he leaves for the trip, while he's gone, and upon his return, okay? So if those are the cast, um, and we're sort of using like this as a play or something, what's the setting? What's the context of the, of the parable? Well, that go takes us back to verse 11, but also there in verse 15, it says, when he returned, having received the kingdom. Okay. So he gives these guys a commission. He gives them their one meanness. And then he goes away and now he has returned in the parable. Okay. And is ready for these people. Um, to give an account. Now, the reason why that's important is because it, explain, it explains to us the time frame that he is focusing on. Jesus is giving us a teaching, and he's saying this teaching is particularly focused on a certain time frame. Um, the nobleman, who is Jesus, is going away to receive a kingdom. He's going to return one day, and that is certainly referencing his own departure, his own death and resurrection, his own ascension, and then his own second coming. And so the deal is, is that it is the question that we are looking at is what has gone on in the meantime. From the time that Jesus went away to the time that he comes back, 
what has gone on in that meantime. Notice in verse 11, we are given a little more context to make that clear. It says he proceeded to tell this parable. Why? Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. All right? So the disciples are like, We've been working our way towards Jerusalem. You remember, as we've talked through Luke, they are, Jerusalem has been sort of the goal and they are slowly making their way to get to Jerusalem. And as they approach Jerusalem, they, at least in the disciples' minds, are also thinking we are approaching Jesus' ascendancy and our own ascendancy in some way, right? We are going to get to be the lieutenants of Christ's kingdom when we get to Jerusalem and he establishes this thing, Okay. But we we are reminded, and we've seen it a hundred times so far in the Gospel of Luke. What does Jesus keep on saying? He keeps on reminding them of something. He says, uh, "I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be betrayed by by the rulers, and I'm going to be killed. I am going to go away at some point. I am not going to be physically present with you. But then one day I am going to return again. So this departure of Jesus and then His second coming is a theme that we have hit." a number of times over the course of Luke. We will hit a number of times before we're done with it. But the reason why it's important here is because it gives us sort of the time frame of the drama of the passage. The passage is taking place now, all right? It is taking place in the time between the ascension, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus um, and the second coming of Jesus, okay? So it is taking place now. And essentially the question is to the disciples and to us is what are you going to do with your time while I am gone? How will you invest in my kingdom while I am not with you present in, in physical presence, right? Or again, to reference our book, how will you then live when you, when I'm not there, what are you going to do? So, um, all this stuff brings together, I think we see some themes and some buzzwords that we hear in our culture all the time. We talk about things like autonomy, like who, who gets to say how I live my life? We talk about issues of, um, you know, these are certainly buzzwords, equality and equity and inclusion, and how all these things relate together in terms of me doing what I've been told to do and me living the life that I want to live on my own. And so I think we can glean some things from this passage about um, who and what we owe to God, and in turn, maybe what we owe to each other in society. So the first thing we, we might look at is verse 15b, and sort of this in. In general, this idea of maybe autonomy. What does he say in verse 15? He says, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him. So this is after he's returned. After he's given the money to these guys and told them to do business until he returns, he's back now. And he says, I want you to come and stand before me so that he might know what they had gained by doing business. All right? Jesus' absence means work for us in the here and now. Does that make sense? If Jesus has gone somewhere, he has called us to do something in the meantime until he comes back. Work, kingdom work. We're supposed to be doing something while we're here. And when he returns, he is going to call his servants to himself and we and they will have to give an account for our lives. 
So we talk about that word again, meanness, right? What does that represent? This amount of money that Christ has invested, you could say, in us, that he has given to us with the intent that we would use it properly. What do those things represent? Well, I think in general, it represents our entire lives. Okay, it is every blessing that we have. It is our time, our resources, our skills, our gifts, our abilities, our connections, our opportunities. It is all those things. And the question is, is how are we going to use every aspect of our lives and leverage those things for the kingdom of God? Okay. so I think there's a principle, several principles that we can take just from looking at that. The first one would be this is that the Lord expects a return. That maybe seem obvious, okay? But I think it's probably something that we don't think of in those terms, right? The Lord expects a return from us that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The reality is, is that we live in service to another, period. The father who created you has the right to determine your purpose on this earth. And your usefulness on this earth. The son who has paid for your life with his own blood has the right to require something of you. Okay. He has purchased you and he gets to tell you how you should do what you should do. You are not your own. The Bible says you have been bought with a price. The price was Christ's own life. So what do we do? We honor God with our lives. It's interesting because he uses those two words that we mentioned earlier, servants and citizens. But the reality is, is all of us, everybody are subjects of God. You don't get another option from that. We all are under the rule of God, whether we accept that rule and his commands or not. And so Jesus dictates the terms of your life. He dictates the expectations of your life. You can reject that if you want to, but it will be at your peril. As we see at the end of this story. I was thinking about, and and probably we have all experienced this. In fact, sometimes we may have been the person it was, but have you ever been in a work environment where someone resented the management for telling people what to do? You ever been in that situation, right? Like there were people who you worked with who just seemed like they were mad that their boss told them the jobs that they wanted them to do, right? Um, I, you know, not to pick on a particular industry, it's just the one that I know because it's pretty much every job I've almost ever had, but working in the restaurant industry, man, that's just, it, there's a lot of that, right? Somebody says, hey, we need you to go over there and clean the grease trap. And you're like, man, who does this guy think he is telling me to clean the grease trap? It's like, well, he's the guy that's paying you, right? He's your boss. Um, that's what you're supposed to do. There's, there's a, there's a, there's a connector there in the same way that we engage with God. Well, God wants me to go out and, and serve in his kingdom in some kind of context. Well, I don't know that I want to do that. I'm not really interested in doing that kind of work. Um, that puts me out of my comfort zone. I don't like that. Well, maybe you don't get a choice in those things to a level. Again, we got all kinds of weird stuff going on in our culture with all of these things right now. Um, again, I, I, it's partially because of the weird stuff that I read, okay? Like I'm reading just probably stuff that I should not look at and I would be calmer and happier in all of my life. But like in the midst of this sort of social and economic revolution that we are living in right now, so 
Um, maybe on, on, on one side, the, the easy thing that we see all the time is, and maybe has always been there, is just this idea of saying, man, you know what? The dream is to do what? Make so much money that I can retire at 50 and then just like recreate for the rest of my life, right? That's sort of the dream. Right. There are some people who are shooting their whole lives for that. You hear these economic gurus. You're saying, man, I want to be able to make my, you know, first five million by the time I'm 30 or something like that. Right. So that I can just quit and then do fun things the rest of my life. That's always been there, but that is not a picture of, of biblical faithfulness. Right. God calls us to a life of work, not to a life of recreation. Okay. Doesn't mean there's not times for rest and recreation, but he doesn't call us to a life where we get to the point that we don't have to do anything anymore. Again, a more radical idea, and this is something I've come across in the last few weeks is the, this idea that is popping up in certain places that we have a right to idleness. That we have a right that it goes against our personhood and our freedom to force us to have to work. Like, that's not right. People shouldn't have to work if they don't want to. It goes against your own personal freedom. And if you don't want to work, you shouldn't have to. But the problem is, is that starving to death also goes against your personhood. People shouldn't have to starve to death either. So there should be a place in the world for people who just don't want to do anything. But also, those people should be fed, closed, housed, and every, housed and everything else. Right? That's a weird idea, folks. And yet it's something that is a function of the mindset of autonomy that we have in our culture, right? I am the master of my own domain, and I shouldn't have to do anything that I don't want to. And it shouldn't hurt me in any way to make decisions, even if those decisions consequently hurt me. The Bible speaks to these things. Not directly, maybe. Again, this passage is not looking into the future to the day when people would be saying, I have a right not to work and yet still be fed. And yet there is an idea there that says, hey, no, you are responsible for these things. God has called you to these things. You are supposed to be a producer of something, particularly in a spiritual realm, right? So when the Bible gives us the command to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, there is a physical, sociological, practical reality to that. As New Testament believers, there is also a spiritual reality to that, right? Um, We are supposed to be filling the world and subduing it in multiple ways and in multiple arenas. But so we glean a principle there, okay? Then we go on and we see some other things. A picture of a kind of equality at the beginning of this story, right? Verse 16, the first man came and said, Lord, your mina, right, the one amount of money you gave me, has made ten more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. The second came and said, Lord, your mina has made five more. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. Okay, now notice something. At the beginning of the story, we have a kind of equality. I mean, what you might call an equality of opportunity at the beginning of the story, okay? Um, all these people have been given the same amount, and they are supposed to go use that amount and, and receive gain from it. But you say, okay, well, Ash, wait a minute. You just said that, like, the, the Mina represented sort of the, all the aspects of our lives, all the giftings and blessings we have, physical and uh, spiritual and gifts and abilities and all these things like that. 
it's not the case that we are all equal in those things, right? We're not. We don't start off from a level playing field. So what do you mean by the image that we are equal in the gifting that God gave us? Well, I think there's something, there's a point to be made here. It's not that the gifts are equal. It's not even that our circumstances are equal. But the opportunity is equal. We all have an opportunity to use whatever gifts we have to the best of our abilities, to the glory of God. Every single one of us. That will look a lot of different ways in a lot of different places. The child that's born in a slum in Calcutta or in a hut in sub-Saharan Africa or a penthouse in Manhattan or the suburb of Maribel, each can equally live their entire lives to the glory of God and his kingdom. But the outcome of those things is not going to be the same, right? It's going to look completely different. The person in Maryville, though, is not responsible to live like the person in India. And the person in India is not responsible to live like the person in Manhattan. That's not where the equality comes in. We all have different gifts and different abilities, but we have the same opportunity to give our entire lives for the kingdom of God and to serve him to the best of our abilities. And what happens in the passage? Um, we see that living faithfully has different results in different cases. Recognize the outcome of that, those men who lived faithfully and received gains are not the same. And we shouldn't expect them to be the same. The rewards for our faithfulness will vary. For one, according to our faithfulness. It doesn't specifically say this, but but our assumption is, is that one guy was somehow more faithful and gained more than the other guy was, at least at some level. The faithfulness of one guy leads to a tenfold gain. The faithfulness of another guy leads to a fivefold gain. Or maybe it wasn't a function of their faithfulness. Maybe they were equally faithful. And yet God chose to give one ten and one five. The reward is not generic, okay? He's not just like rolling a die and then like whatever is on that die is what the reward is. But it also isn't equitable. It's not equal, not across the board, but it's in keeping with faithfulness. That's the distinction. So God doesn't say, hey, faithfulness of this amount gets X amount and you were faithful of a different level, so you also get X amount. That's not that's not what happens in the passage. Obviously, the function of faithfulness is not, does not automatically guarantee you a certain level of reward. They, they're just blessed differently at the end of it. And again, there's no question as to the fairness of that. Shouldn't they both have gotten 10 or shouldn't they both have gotten five or something like that? In fact, to drive the point home, the servant who has been unfaithful will not only receive no reward, but he also, the one mina he has is taken from him and given to the guy with the 10. And look what it says in verse 24. Look at the knee-jerk reaction. That is probably your reaction and mine. What does he say in verse 24? It says, he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And then what does it say in verse 25? But they all said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. Right? The reaction is, that guy's already got plenty, God. 
You don't need to give him anything else, okay? Immediately, there is a sense of fairness in us that just says, he doesn't need any more. He's got more than everybody else already. Don't, don't give it to that guy. But what does it say? That's our knee-jerk reaction, but apparently that's wrong. That makes sense in our earthly ideal of fairness, but it doesn't seem to be what God says. God sovereignly dis- distributes the reward. And it is in keeping with their faithfulness. So the other man has been faithful and he receives a reward. The man who has not been will be deprived. And then that proverb comes in, which is just doubles down on it and is uncomfortable. Okay? We should probably acknowledge that. It's a weird thing. It doesn't feel like it should say this in the Bible. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That seems weird. Does it seem weird to you? Maybe you're just more spiritual than I am. Maybe you're like, no, Ash, like that's the way the world is, right? It seems weird to me that Jesus would say that. Again, certainly when there's a tension to these things, that's not the whole picture of all of God's character. For for example, we all remember the story of, that Jesus tells of the workers coming at different hours of the day right? Some come at the beginning of the day and he promises to them amount and then more come at noon and then more at three and then more at five. And at the end of the day, what does it say? Jesus pays everybody the same. And the guy at the beginning of the day was like, this isn't any fair. I worked all day. And he's like, yeah, but you agreed on the amount and I gave you what I agreed on. Why are you mad that I'm being merciful and blessing this other guy? It's my money. I can do whatever I want to with it. Okay. That's the case with God's blessings. God can give those blessings out however he wants to. And yet he also shows us that it's not willy-nilly. It's not, it is in keeping with our faithfulness. And so there is an equality of opportunity in a sense, but there is not an equality in outcomes. It's just not the way the world works. And it's not the way God's kingdom works even. That rubs some of us the wrong way. But here's another interesting aspect to this, this passage. And, and, and it's something that, again, we might get caught up in all this language of reward and, and stuff like that. But notice something. What is the reward that these people get? Is it money? Is it prizes? Is it fancy creams and lotions? It's cities. They're given cities as their reward, okay? Cities would certainly in the ancient world have represented the material blessing that might come from one from, the, from them, but guess what they also represent? They also represent more responsibility. A city is something that you are going to have to lead and manage and serve even more now because you've been given responsibility over something, okay? And here's the cool thing. That's how... Another aspect of these things that we often misunderstand, we are thinking of reward in terms of prize oftentimes. But the reality is, is that God, when he rewards people, he rewards them to greater levels of service, not to greater levels of recreation, leisure, okay? He doesn't say you have been faithful, so take a break, chill out, Go hang out on the beach, collect seashells, and live your life and just like put them on your windowsill and look at them all. That's not what he does, right? Instead, what does he say? He says, 
you have been faithful in a few things, and now you'll be faithful in greater things. I will give you more responsibility. Because the Christian life is always, leadership is always about service. So it would make sense that if people are being faithful in leadership, it would not lead to less responsibility. It would lead to more responsibility that they will then in turn have to be responsible for. And they will either faithfully serve in those things or they won't. Now, the character of the third servant is interesting, and I'm not exactly sure what to do with him a little bit. Because my first instinct is to think of him in terms of the way works and reward are described in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So we've talked about this passage a lot before. Verse 11, 1 Corinthians 3. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on that foundation with gold or silver or precious stones or wood or hay or straw, each man's work will become manifest. For the day of judgment will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of works each man has done. If the work that he, uh, that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, and this is the key, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as one being saved through the fire. Okay? So, at first, what I want to see this guy and, I, and, and read his life through, his illustration through, is through that First Corinthians passage. This is a servant whose work has been found wanting. Okay? He has not lived faithfully. He has not done what God called him to do, the nobleman called him to do, which was to make a gain from the, 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 the gifts that he has been given. And yet, it has not forfeited him his soul. He is still a servant of the nobleman. He is still in the nobleman's company. But there's a little danger in that. Then this is the, this is the conflict for me in the passage. What does it also say? It says in verse 21, um, this third servant has completely misunderstood and misrepresented the character of the nobleman. Okay? He sees him as a harsh man, perhaps even a crooked or opportunistic man. He says in verse 21, I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you didn't deposit and you reap what you didn't sow. So here's the problem. It may be possible that this servant doesn't really know his master at all. Okay. That he is technically a servant of the nobleman, but he, he's not, he doesn't know the character of the nobleman in any way, shape or form. Okay. And so what worries me is that maybe the story is actually pointing more to um, the parable that Jesus uses about um, the people who come to him and say, haven't we preached in your name and did all these great things in your name? And he says, depart from me for I never knew you. Okay. I'm not sure which way we are supposed to think of this third guy. But the ambiguity maybe is intentional. Okay. The person who claims to be a servant of Christ and yet irresponsibly manages the things that they have been entrusted with is in a precarious position. You should feel in a precarious position, right? We talk about this all the time. If you are a person who claims that you have trusted in Jesus Christ, that you've been saved and that you are um, a follower of Jesus, and yet there is no fruit in your life, it is right for you to question your own salvation. It is right for other people at a level to question your salvation, to look and say, man, For somebody who claims to be a follower of Jesus, there is no fruit. I see no fruit in this situation. And so I think maybe the ambiguity is there for a reason. 
What is the outcome of this third man's life? Well, we know he doesn't receive a reward. And yet at the same time, it doesn't seem to be that he has as big a consequence as that last group of people, which is the people who were called at the beginning citizens, but who now at the end are called enemies. So what does it say in verse 27? It says, but as for these enemies of mine, and we know that it's the same people as the citizens, because next it says, who did not want me to reign over them, right? That's a reference back to the beginning. What are we supposed to do? It says, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Okay, again, I don't know how that strikes you. It's not the normal kind of thing that I think of Jesus saying. But the reality is, is this, that God is no respecter of persons, right? So on one level, he is very inclusive. In fact, he's inclusive in all the ways that we typically are not inclusive, that we're bad at. God does not discriminate in terms of ethnicity, of nationality, of socioeconomic class, of age, of gender, rightly understood, okay? The fact that I have to say that, also a strange thing in our culture. God doesn't discriminate on any of those things. But he does distinguish between the follower and the rebel. Between those who are servants of God and merely just citizens in his kingdom. And notice, again, as far as we can tell, even the unfaithful servant is not rejected and punished to the extent that these rebellious citizens are. That may be wrong, but it seems to be the case. He has been irresponsible in his life, but even then he is not expelled from God's presence. He is not expelled from his people. He is not condemned the way those who have rejected God's rulership, the nobleman's rulership. And so there's a cost to that guy in terms of his reward, but there's not a cost in terms of his salvation, or at least we, again, presume that. But for those who have rejected the nobleman and his rule, they've rejected Jesus and his kingdom, For those who have said, I owe this nobleman neither honor nor a return on the things that he has purchased with his own life, for those people, there is only condemnation and death. So again, we'll close on this idea. I think ideas have consequences. Okay? This passage is about spiritual realities. It is about us living faithfully in the in-between time between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ. But it also gives us principles that we can bring into the daily working of of the way uh, our our lives and business and economy and everything else work. In terms of things like the ideas of fairness and the ideas of what is uh, deserved by people and and the ideas of who is responsible for what in in this world. How we understand God and his kingdom has effects on the way we live our lives in other avenues. And I think maybe that's what he's getting at in verse 22 when he says, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. He basically says, if you really thought these ideas about who I was, then those ideas should have influenced your actions, right? If you really thought I was a harsh man, then you should have lived out your life in such a way that would not put you under the judgment of a harsh man. I think he's pointing in general to the idea that says our understanding of who God is ought to play itself out in the way we live our lives. 
And I hope you say, well, of course, Ash. Yeah, certainly it should. But I think the point is, is that that means that we don't get to sort of say, well, here's spiritual values. And then the world works in a different way. I don't think we should do that. I think we should say, man, how can I apply these spiritual values to the whole rest of my life? Because this is the way that God acts. This is the character that he calls me to. And I want to live that out in every aspect of, of our of my life. Again, to close and return to the spiritual principle, folks, there's a lot of work to be done. Um, the kingdom of God is out there. We have been given a responsibility. Um, we have been invested with something. And God says, I'm going to be back one day. And I'm going to want to know how you have used the things that I've given you, the opportunities and the places of influence, um, the resources you have, the relationships. How have you used these to grow and benefit the kingdom of God? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, you have uh, put us in a world that, that, God, we recognize that our own hearts and desires, um, the own brokenness of our sinful natures, God, the own, that the, the, the philosophy and the worldview of the world um, that does not believe in you, um, that has said that it does not want you to rule over them. God, it has a voice and is exerting an influence over our culture and even over our own hearts and minds that we are, uh, it is easy for us to drift towards that, to be pulled towards those ideas, to rest in our own understanding of, of fairness and, and rightness and goodness in the world. And yet we are often brought to passages in your scripture, God, that push back against us in multiple ways. They push back us against us um, from the left. They push back against us from the right. They push at us from the center, God. We, um, we come to your word and we are confronted with your word. And we know that that must be the case, God, because you are perfect in all things and we are not. And so it is, we should expect that when we come to your word, it would challenge us. That you, the things that you say about people and about the world and about life, that, that those things will, will, will challenge and, and, and rub us the wrong way sometimes because our thoughts are not your thoughts. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But God, we want to live in such a way that aligns our life with you. We want to come into, um, right alignment um, with who you are and what you have called us to. God, we will mess up in any number of ways, and yet we don't live in such a way that we are fine with the messing up. God, we want to honor you because we know that you're going to come back and look for the ways that we have honored you in your kingdom, and we're responsible for that. So help us to do that. God, give us a heart to serve. Give us a heart to work. Give us a heart to not um, rest on our laurels and take advantage of, of the uh, the peace and the blessing and the opportunity that we have. But God, help us to um, be faithful with those things and leverage them for the advancement of your kingdom. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.